Hello and welcome to the Iris Murdoch podcast. In today's episode we're going to be discussing her 17th novel, A Word Child. Uh, now the novel was published on what is generally considered to be the height of her powers in 1975 and it was released to rave reviews in the press at the time uh, with Harold Bloom uh, no less, acclaiming it as one of her masterpieces and coming as it does in between The Black Prince and The Sea the Sea. Joining me on today's podcast is uh, Rob Hardy, who's honorary professor at uh, Hernan Normal University in China. Hello, Rob. Hi, Miles. Hi. He did his uh, PhD on Murdoch, and he's published two books since, uh, The Psychological and Religious Narratives in Iris Murdoch's Fiction, and also one on The divine, uh, the Feminine Divine in D.H. Lawrence, Dion Fortune, and Ted Hughes. And he's currently finishing a book on the American writer Pearl S. Buck, who spent the first half of her life in China. And I think, Rob, I'm right in saying, was the first woman to win the Nobel Prize. Uh, yes, I think that is correct. Yeah. Um, and indeed, unlike earlier podcasts uh, in this series, it's the first to be chosen, the first novel to be chosen by a guest. And uh, Rob's actually chosen the word child for today, and I'm sure he'll tell us why this one, um, why he chose this one in particular shortly. Also joining me, uh, Dr. Daniel Reed, who's recently completed his PhD at the University of Kingston on the problem of evil and the, and the fiction and philosophy of Iris Murdoch. Hello, Dan. Hello. He's been an occasional assistant editor um, for the Iris Murdoch Review and has con contributed essays and reports for that. And he's um, considering um, a collection of Iris Murdoch's interviews as well for publication, along with Anne Rowe, who's, of course, one of our regulars on the podcast. And his interests include um, psychopathy and the writings of William Blake. And finally, I'm delighted to welcome Maria Peacock. Hello, Maria. Hello. Uh, and um, she's uh, currently undertaking research here at the Iris Murdoch Research Centre at Chichester on aspects of displacement and uprootedness in Iris Murdoch's fiction that's following on from her MA on work on Murdoch and the picaresque novel. Welcome to you all. Now Rob, unlike previous podcasts as I've mentioned, you, um, you and I in conversation thought that Word Child would be a really good one um, to discuss for an hour or so. Can you tell, tell me why, uh, why this novel and um, a, a bit of back, your background in Murdoch as well? Sure. Okay. Why, why this novel? Um, I think it was partly because I think it was probably the first Iris Murdoch novel I read that really, really gripped me. Um, and I've read it several times over the last, I don't know, 20 years probably. And um, I, th I think one of the reasons that it gripped me so much was because the psychology of the first person narrator I found just just astonishing um partly because that his particular story spoke to me very much personally um having um identified myself as being self-identified as somebody who had a pretty challenging childhood um as hillary bird had had um and it exemplified the whole novel exemplifies for me um something that i, I just found astonishing about iris murdoch when i started to read her seriously which was that and I've had this experience with no other um, mind of any other writer, I think I can say this truthfully, not even D.H. Lawrence, is that I felt that Iris Murdoch had understood me and I was, as it were, enfolded within this astonishing mind, which was not just a mind, of course, because it was also, um, she presents herself astonishingly as a mother. I mean, one of the characters in, uh, sorry, Hillary in A Word Child says um, that being seen by Anne, his lover, 
was like being seen by God. And for me, I think the experience of reading Iris Murdoch was like being seen by God. It was as though I thought, my God, this woman completely understands me. And it was a profoundly emotional experience. I mean, it's, and it's reading Iris Murdoch remains a profoundly emotional experience for me. I first got, I, I came to Iris Murdoch very late. I mean, not long before she died actually. Um, and my first, ex my first exposure of an Iris Murdoch text was when I was teaching English in school, in secondary school, and I had to teach some passages uh, of comprehension to year 10 or 11. And, um, and one of the passages uh, was, I, I had, I'd never read a word of Iris Murdoch, but the passage was from uh, A Flight from Enchanter, where, from the Enchanter, where Annette Cocaine is swinging on a on chandelier when the headmistress walks in. And I thought this was A, extremely funny, uh, B, extremely well written. So immediately I wanted to, I wanted to identify the writer. And I, I didn't sort of, I thought, wow, this is really good. Um, I then read A Flight from the Enchanter and didn't think the novel itself was so great. Um, more recently I do, actually. But it, it took me a while to come back to, to come back to her. Um, so I think A Word Child was probably the, the, first, the first novel that really, really utterly gripped me. And, it, and that's still true for me. Could you give us a, uh, a, a sort of brief overview of, of the novel for those, um, for those listeners who might be approaching it for the first time? Sure. Um, well, this will involve spoilers. Is that OK? I, I think we're going to have to have some spoilers, unfortunately. <laughs> yeah, I think we're right. I think you're right. OK, um, the story is of... A, um, a man in his, I think he's 42 at the time of the novel, uh, when, when, uh, when he, he's, he's telling the story of the novel in the first person and he's looking back. The, the, the time of writing is indeterminate, but he is looking back um, at the, the time when he, the present of the novel is when he is working at a pretty awful job as a lowly civil servant right at the, nearly at the bottom of the ladder not quite um and there's a very funny uh, sense that it, 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 hillary creates the psychology of working in a large hierarchical institution very well we learn early that actually that he has come down in the world very very badly having however only having started very very badly in the world so it's as it were he's done an arc started started very very low down in the scale of things and going back towards the um the poor you know the very poor beginnings from where, where, where he started he was his mother died when he was seven his he was uh, brought up um, briefly by an aunt with his sister uh, the aunt in a caravan in the north, which is for Hillary, a realm of hell. He is soon ejected from the caravan and goes in, this, in, a, in a, an orphanage where he is subjected to extreme evangelical Christian bullying. Uh, he imbibes it. Um, he thinks he outgrows it, but it becomes clear in the novel that he never does. And um, he is rescued, which is a word he uses again and again, by a classics teacher at his 
as he calls it, filthy little school. This classic this, uh, languages and classic teacher turns out to be an absolute genius at teaching. And through his attention to Hillary, he, he does, achieves the amazing feat of preparing Hillary to enter Oxford, where he gets one of the top firsts of his year, where he wins uh, two, the, the um, Gayson Prize for Greek prose and the Chancellor's Latin Prize for Latin prose, and all sets, and he's elected to a fellowship, all sets, seems set for an amazing academic career until an utter disaster strikes. Um, he is, he falls hopelessly, catastrophically in love with a wonderful colleague and ends up um, driving at over 100 miles an hour and killing her and her unborn baby. And uh, we've, we find that particular, um, that those particular events, not at the beginning of the novel towards, I don't know, halfway towards the, the, the middle of the novel, I think. Um, and this particular event, which happened years before the time in which the novel is set, is as obviously utterly, utterly destroyed him, and he just does not know what to do, to do how to deal with it. And the available mechanisms for dealing with such a tragedy, particularly the Christian mechanisms which he learned of repentance, atonement, and so on, just don't work for him. So it's, I mean, in a sense, it's a profound case study of a very, very damaged individual um, looking at the ways which might, what, what available, what available remedies might be available for such a man who has, who has so utterly wrecked his own and others' lives. Yeah, I mean, rereading it recently, over the past week or so, um, it, it struck me that it's it's a very good case study of depression Absolutely. as well and of remorse grief um, I mean she, she does the first person male narrator very well yeah um, this this is probably one of the one of the best I would say would yeah. you yeah yeah I agree I agree completely yeah yeah um, I'm going to bring in um, Maria I think just uh, Maria those sorts of areas of the novel time with you as well well, yes, I mean, I first read it way back in the 1970s, which was the most wonderful decade um, for the general reader, because there was a Murdoch novel coming out pretty well every year. Um, and I read it very much as a reader for pleasure. Um, and she was one of my favourite authors, and I was reading them as soon as I could I could get a hold of a copy of the novel. In those days, it was either you waited till the paperback came out and you, you passed it round your friends, or else you, um, you, you waited for the public library to have a copy. I can't remember what copy I read, but I seem to have a sort of memory that it was a hardback, and so it was probably a library copy. Um, I loved Iris Murdoch, amongst a lot of other writers, um, for the places her novels took me to. Um, she exposed me to new ideas, um, and I just loved the amazing, the outrageous pl plots and the relationships and the possibilities she offered. Um, and this novel didn't disappoint it. But I was—I really also had a very soft spot for this novel because at the time I was—I was working as a civil servant, I had a career civil servant, not in Whitehall. Um, and of course, Hillary is a civil servant. And it was an environment which I 
could recognize as close to my daily working life. And this was very unusual in those days, um, because most of the novels I read were set on university campuses, which wasn't my life. Um, and Murdoch really does do the civil service very well. Um, and she's funny. It was a funny a, a depiction of the sort of days I was having, the days when Dury was having. Um, there was a male-dominated hierarchy of the office, importance of grades, a bit of cliqueiness, um, the very strange job roles that nobody was really quite sure of, and really the sheer tedium. Um, and I found out later that Murdoch herself had worked with the Treasury, and she, she found a very frigid, protective atmosphere. And she also had friends who worked there. So she, you know, she was bringing that to this novel. And having said that, I, I did really largely enjoy my job. So it's, um, and I also enjoyed this very much as a novel. And I used to recommend it to people. Um, now, decades later, I revisited it last year when I was rereading the novels in connection with my PhD research into her presentation of The Displaced and the Ruthless. Um, and my initial interest, of my, my main interest, was into emigres and exiles, refugees. Um, and I didn't think at first this was going to be very significant for my thesis. But in fact, I realised it is totally a novel of displacement. It's about a person who's not only ruthless, he comes from nowhere, he's illegitimate, his mother dies, he has got no sort of family connections, and he, ne he never puts down roots, so he's very much displaced and ruthless, um, and he doesn't belong anywhere. And like the exiled writers, like exiled writers do, he finds a home in language and words. Um, I think as well that looking back, reading this now, it's very much a political novel. It reflects the time it was written, but it's also still a very good story and you find new riches every time you read it. So thank you, Rob. It's a very good choice. And Dan, what is it about this novel? Obviously thinking about your interest in evil particularly, I'm sure there are you know, the, the banal, you know, I know it's an overworked phrase, but this, this, the banal evil that, um, that, that Hillary sort of does because, because of his ego. And then, he, you know, there's this, you know, a, a long sequence of repenting. And of course, the, then the action, you know, again, I suppose we're going into spoilers, really. But the, the action of um, Hillary and Anne is, is repeated in, in Hillary and Kitty, and there's a suggestion that it might even ha happen again. Is that something that when, you're, when you've been rereading it, you've been picking up on? Um, yeah, so I, I mean, the first time I came to this novel was, was, was for, my, for my master's um, dissertation. Um, I think I had read it briefly earlier than that, but um, so it was only ever in, you know, in, a, in an environment for kind of um, studying Murdoch. And for a long time, that has been what's, uh, well, that is what's continued to draw me to Murdoch. There is, as um, Rob has said, you know, there's a real, um, Murdoch captures the complexities of, of the individual very well. And, um, and that continues to, to draw me to in in on all of her novels. Um, with this one in particular, when it came to my MA, I was thinking about psychopathy and um, and and yes, seeing um, these kind of repeated behaviours in Hillary, 
was um, I found him to be quite uh, an unpleasant character and I think I probably wasn't being very sympathetic to him either. Uh, but again, one of the things that m many of us who read Murdoch come to see is that the the novels do kind of change slightly as you read them, and so I think I'm I think I'm more sympathetic to him now than I was, though still with an awareness that he is, um, yeah, he 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 he's a problematic character. But I, I think, and this will come up in my reading that I've chosen later on, that I think he does come to, um, he he comes to a better kind of understanding of his, of his moral faults and of his um. You know, he takes responsibility in some ways that that you can see will be of benefit to him in the future. Yeah, so um, I think that answers the question just about. Yeah, I think so. I, I'm I'm really interested in um, I, I suppose the the moral progression of Hillary as regards um, his interactions with other characters. And I think Murdoch does this very well, doesn't she, when she um, picks up on the relationship that. Um, he has with Clifford, um, obviously, you know, is, is there some sort of latent homosexual um, feeling between them? Um, the, the relationship that he has with Gunner. It's interesting, actually, that the relationships that he has with men and the relationships with ha he has with women are, um, are, are quite, quite different within the novel. Uh, in, in some regards, I think the, the novel is very homosocial. And, but um, perhaps there's, there's something there for you to, to consider. Yes, yes. I think um, this is something that, um, I mean, I found while I was thinking about Hillary through the kind of lens of psychopathy that, or psychopathy, that it was, um, it kind of quickly, it quickly becomes quite narrowing. And I think um, you find yourself, um, you only see repeated behaviours, you don't see changes, because that's what you're looking for. And part of this novel, of course, is about where Murdoch is playing with the fact that Hillary is this kind of repetitive individual who who goes round and round the circle line, who has yeah, of course, structured yeah. days of his life, and um, yeah, um, right down to meeting people on specific days for specific meals. But um, but when you yeah, the, there is more complexity there, and I think he he does come to some changes towards the end of the novel that are positive and suggest he has a bit more um self self-awareness perhaps but yeah there is there is still a kind of overriding slightly ominous feeling at the end of the novel of whether or not he will be doing this again because there are some repetitions of behavior that happen with Anne and later with Kitty that do seem problematic yes absolutely and it, it Picking up on that point that you made about the, the structure of the novel, it's structured, you know, it's structured the, um, by day, isn't it? We so the chapters are, are done by days. As you say, he has particular evenings for seeing people or or not seeing people when he when he. Um, obviously yeah. It's structured by letter as well, and the, the the written word as well is in perhaps more important than the spoken word, and of course the structure of London as well, and how he you know Murdoch gives us um, the detail of how he how he walks through London and, and, and the use that she makes of um, particular landmarks to sort of demarcate his journey as he goes through. Rob, is that something that also that um, you picked up on when you're rereading recently? Uh, yeah, I mean, the thing about the uh, repetitiveness of the days, I mean, um, what, one of Murdoch's favourite phrases was a rat run 
uh, you know, the rat run of thinking when you start to just go round and round and round. I mean, I mean, in a way, Hillary's entire life is a rat run that's going round. I mean, that, that wonderful image of riding, being a circle line rider with the alcoholics and the drug addicts and the, the depressed and, you know, the whole, if you like, Flotsam and Jetsam of London um, that he identifies himself with. Um, and it's a London of the past as well, isn't it? Of course, because the bars no longer exist. Yeah, that's right. Absolutely right. And but it uh, and it is very precisely set at the time of um, the uh, power strikes in the night. Uh, sorry, sorry, the minor strikes in the early nineteen seventies, when indeed the power power was turned off. We had a three day week. Yeah. Um, uh, she uh, Murdoch has seems to have taken very very careful pains to set this novel. Um, at a particular time, which she, I don't think it's true that she always does, but she has with this one. Yes, we're, we're reflecting on the, the actions of the 50s and then we're reflecting on the present day of the, of the 70s as well. Absolutely, yeah, absolutely. Yeah. Well, I think we, it's probably a, a good moment for us to uh, reflect on the, on the detail of the novel then. I, I, I know that you've all um, thought about particular uh, passages of the novel to, to read. So, I, Maria, I think you've... Um, You've picked the earliest, and um, I think what, what page twenty-three is it? I think it's twenty-one. Twenty-one. In, in my, um, I've got a triad paperback triad, which I think is probably the same as the Penguin. Yeah. Do you, um, do you want to um, talk to us a little bit about the scene, and then read it, and then yes. and then say why you think it's um, important? Yeah. Well, as as Rob so um, put it, gave us such a good outline earlier, and. Um, the start in Hillary's life, and um, he had the most terrible start from a deprived child um, in, a, in a poor northern town, um, no real family, um, and by the time he was 14, he was pretty well lost. He was filled with anger, filled with destructiveness, and was an absolute lout. Um, and he, these, this paragraph gives us some idea of um, of how the change that came in his life, um, from, first of all, from um, from someone actually taking notice of him, seeing him as a human being, and also um, from the the actual change that came to that made him into a work child. Um, and then I'd like to read a little bit later where this same 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 um, person comes back into his life. So we'll we'll come back to. There will be two passages. Um, the realisation that people had simply given up trying to teach me anything enlightened me at last. More than lectures from magistrates, just about how shipwrecked I was, and increased my anger and my sense of injustice. For within the dawning despair came also the tormenting idea that in spite of everything, I was clever. I had a mind though I never wanted to use it. I could learn things, only now it was too late and nobody would let me. Mr. Osmond looked at me quietly. He had grey eyes. He gave me his full attention. I suspect that many children are saved by saints and geniuses of this kind. Why are such people not made rich by a grateful society? How exactly the miracle happened is another thing which I cannot very clearly recall. Suddenly, my mind woke up. Floods of light came in. I began to learn. 
I began to excel in new ways. I learned French. I started on Latin. Mr. Osmond promised me Greek. An ability to write fluent, correct Latin prose began to offer me escape from, perhaps literally, the prison house. It began in time to show me vistas headier and more glorious than any I had ever known before known how to dream of. In the beginning was the word. A mo, a mas, a mat was my open sesame. Learn these verbs by Friday, the essence of my education. I also learned, of course, my own language, hitherto something of a foreign tongue. I learned from Mr. Osmond how to write the best language in the world, accurately and clearly, and ultimately with a hard, careful elegance. I discovered words, and words were my salvation. I was not, except in some very broken down sense of that ambiguous term, a love child. I was a world child. And that paragraph, to me, uh, is perhaps the moment when Hillary is, at, is, at, is actually at his happiest. Yes. It's, it's the most, you know, joy, joyful experience of his life in, in, in some regards, isn't it? I mean, he, yes. he pours himself into other experiences, but uh, I don't think any of them come quite as close to when he's actually studying with Mr. Osmond. I, I think you're going to follow that up with um, a, a, a section from, a le from later in the novel. Yeah. Um, there's one point that rather struck me rereading that paragraph is I think there's quite a bit of Murdoch's coming in there as the authorial voice. Uh, although this novel is seen through Hillary's voice all the time, and that's one of the, the interesting things and one of the challenges of it in working out actually what's happening. And here we do hear, um, she, she believed in the passionately in the value of education. And at that time, she was very much taking part in a, a debate about selective schools. Mm, yes, of course. Um, and I think this comes out, and especially with the, um, you know, um, I suspect many children are saved by saints and geniuses of this kind. I don't think that's Hillary's voice, that's Murdoch's voice. Yes. That's, yeah. that's an aside um, on, 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 you know, the, I suppose Murdoch is an author. Yeah. No, um, I, think that, I think there's an argument to be made that actually she comes through most strongly as an authorial presence in those first-person male-rated yeah. novels. Yeah, yeah. Um, but, you know, Hillary's been given this life through words, um, and that stays with him actually till the end of the... And, you know, we see that even at the end of the novel when he's in total grief, and um, he, he says he feels a lively gratitude for words even for words whose sense I couldn't understand. And that is what stays with him when he's grieving Clifford and he's citing T.S. Eliot at, at the end of the novel. Yes, sure. Um, and also say we've got Mr. Osmond with his grey eyes giving him his full attention um, and teaching him the Latin word to love. Yes. Um, and it's the kindness and it's the attention and not seeing him as a person that makes him a human being really um but he sees we may next account encounter Osmond. we realize that um, henry loses contact with him he's it's sort of he severs the relationship with his past and mr osmond is part of that and so we next encounter mr osmond through henry's vision when later on in um, page 298 of, of my copy um, he's been given a, a psychedelic drug by one of his, his flatmates. 
And in this mentally altered state, he sees Mr. Osmond like the universe, fundamentally funny, because that's the way he's seeing everything at that particular point. Mr. Osmond was crawling about on the floor like a beetle. He was a beetle with a huge head, and the head came towards me, and the huge beetle eyes looked into mine, and the eyes had a thousand facets. Mr. Osmond was very beautiful and very funny, and I loved him. Amo amasamat, amama samama samat, amavi amavisti amavit, amavivamus amavistis amaverant, amavero amaveris amaveris. Everything was love. Everything will be love. Everything has been love. Everything would be love. Ah, oh, that was it. The truth at last. Everything would have been love. The huge eye, which had become an immense sphere, was gently breathing. Only it was not an eye, nor a sphere, but a great, wonderful animal covered in little waving hair, legs, like, legs like hairs, waving oh so gently as if they were underwater. All shall be well, and all shall be well, said the ocean. And so the place of reconciliation existed after all. Not like a little knothole in a cupboard, but flowing everywhere and being everything. I could forgive, I could be forgiven, I could forgive. Perhaps that was the whole of it after all. Perhaps being forgiven was just forgiving, only no one had ever told me. There was nothing else needful, just to forgive. Forgiving equals being forgiven. The secret of the universe. Do not, whatever you do, forget it. So this is a very um, odd part of the, the book. It's the trip that is very graphically described. And it takes us into a place where Hillary has a revelation, another revelation. Whereas the first revelation with, with Mr. Osmond was realizing the power and the beauty of words. This is the possibility of love and forgiveness. And the presence of Mr. Osmond is linked with the Latin conjugation of the verb to love. And this offers a, a possibility, a way through to forgiveness through forgiving. And that was what Hillary was, was being sought at the time. And it's later echoed by her sister Crystal when she urges him to forgive Donna to create a, a kind of open case. But yes, of course. Yeah, I think I think Crystal is perhaps the 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 character or the image of goodness within the novel. It's interesting you picked that um, reflection on Mr. Osman there via, via the psych psychedelic drug. It's a, it, it's a revelation, as you said. It's a you know that she's challenged uh, channeling. And Julian of Norwich there, isn't she, with the revelations of divine love, sort of mixed with a bit of Kafka, it seems yes, to me. Exactly. It's yeah. um, a very, very strange section. Yes. And uh, apparently she, um, it was one of her students, David Morgan, who, um, who, who late, late his memoir was um, in, um, for, for Love and Rage, with Love and Rage. Um, he, he'd been studying there. He actually told her about the, about a psychedelic trip that he'd had in great detail, and he recognised this from reading this. So she, she, it's you know it's, it's just a, 
a tribute to the way Iris Murdoch just listened and took everything in. Yes, um, yeah, especially from da especially from David Morgan, who um, yeah. I think I think a, a, a fair bit of David Morgan is is um, is within Hilary Bird. Yes, as well mm -hmm. as she she puts in a lot of his. Um, but she she herself um, disapproved of of taking. Uh, mind altering drugs. Oh yes, uh, yeah, absolutely. Yeah. Yeah. It's interesting actually. You mentioned this. Uh, this um, the uh, the rejection of Mr. Osmond. Of course, we we hear earlier on in the book that uh, Mr. Osmond comes to visit. Um, yeah. Hillary while he's at Oxford, and and Hillary sort of turns him away. It reminded me very much of um, Pip turn, um, Pip in Great Expectations turning away um, Joe Gardry. Actually, yes. I think I think there's a an echo of the Dickensian in there a little bit as well of being brought up to have great expectations. Yeah. Um, Rob, I think the good place to bring you in because your your section comes in a little bit later, doesn't it, in, in the novel? Yeah, sure. Uh, mine's around page. Uh, it, mine, I've got the um, vintage um, ebook. It's on page two, three, 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 four. Passage that I'm going to look at now is um, coming back to something I think both Dan and uh, Maria said earlier that. As you reread and reread the novels, you discover new things each time. And the passage I'm going to read, which is on uh, page 234 in the Vintage Classics edition, features a young woman who appears on, I think, virtually every day of the book, every chapter of the book, but she says virtually nothing. We discover very, very little about her other than that she has an English, she is the child of an English mother uh, who may have been a sex worker, we're not sure, and an, Indi uh, 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 an Asian father who she knows nothing about except that his mother, her mother, sorry, always calls her, um, called the father a Pakistani. The woman herself scarcely has a name. She is referred to as Biscuit uh, throughout the novel, both by Lady Kitty, who is her employer, and the second woman uh, Hilary falls in love with, um, catastrophically, again. And um, and he, uh, the, the, the name Biscuit is the name given to her by her employer. Her actual name is Alexandra Bissett, B-I-S-S-E-T. Tea. That is one of the few things that we actually discover about her. And Hillary's treatment of this young woman is, for me, connects so many of the, so many of the issues in this novel. Also, um, as a kind of comment on its pervasive intertextuality, the, intertex the intertext being from Kipling, Conrad and Newbolt. And she, um, Hillary talks about the great influence of him, the wonderful influence uh, on him as a child, of being exposed to Newbolt's East, Conrad's East, and Kipling's East, all of which the passages, with one exception, that he, the, the texts from those three writers, with one exception that he chooses, were celebrations of the Indian Raj, or of the British Empire anyway. The one exception is Kip, Kipling's story, of Tumai and the Elephants, the little Indian boy who was carried away to the dance, to the elephant dance. Put, but the, the pervasive theme of the British Raj, of the British Empire, celebrated in texts referred to, that Hillary refers to like um, 
the white man's burden, take up the white man's burden, um, or play up, play up and play the game in Bihai Lampada by, um, uh, by what's his name? Sorry, I've just, I've just forgotten the guy's name, Newbolt. Um, and uh, that, that celebration of the British Empire. But then we meet an actual British Asian woman. And when, when um, Hillary meets this woman, uh, this is how he treats her. They've been playing leapfrog, of all things, near the Serpentine. And I, I, um, when I first read this, I just didn't know what to do with it. So I, I like parked it and thought this is just silly. She's just Murdoch being silly. What the earth is she doing? And went back, and I went back to Hillary's solipsism. But reading it again now, I think there is much more to it than I first thought. Okay, this is what he says. Well, Lady Alexandra Bissett, and how are we today, Lady Alexandra? All right, Hillary, it's such a lovely day. It's one of the great days. Tell me something, Alexandra. Was your father really a British colonel? This is what uh, Hillary, um, Alexandra uh, had first said to him. Biscuit pushed me a little way so that she could look up into my face. I contemplated her reddish black eyes, the refinement of her long, thin, wary mouth. No. A private? No. Was your mother a Brahmin? No. Were you born in Benares? No. Were you born in India? No. Are you a dreadful little liar? Yes. I shall be sorry, jolly sorry, if it turns out that your name isn't even Alexandra Fissett. Oh, it is, she said. My name is Alexandra Princess. I was called after Princess Alexandra. So even if you aren't a princess, you were called after one. I thought you couldn't possibly really come from India. Why? Because of your voice. You're a little cockney girl, aren't you? You were born in, let me see, Stepney, East India Dock Road? Not Benares. Not Benares. My dearest little London biscuit tweela, I kissed the thin, intelligent mouth. I gave a little responsive, it gave a little responsive motion, but did not try to detain my lips. It was very cold. I thought, here I am, kissing Lady Kitty's maid, and not for the first time either. That seemed all right. As I would never kiss Lady Kitty, I might as well kiss her maid. After all, I too belonged to the servants' hall. It did not even make me feel sad. In the pure interim of today, nothing could make me feel sad. Was your mother English? Yes. But you had an Indian father. Who was he? I don't know. My father was a mystery man too. I think he only, this is Biscuit speaking, I think he only knew my mother for a short time. She said he was a Pakistani, but she called everybody a Pakistani. Then Hillary says, milk, chocolate, biscuit, tear, give me a hat. Biscuit had taken her gloves off and now her two little skinny warm hands had bur burrowed, burrowed into the sleeves of my overcoat and were holding onto my wrists. And your mother? She died. She was a waitress. That's bis Biscuit's last words. Uh, and I suppose I've chosen this because it, for me it's, it's, it shows Murdoch's amazing ability to bring in people, characters, who whose lives on the surface are so tangential, tangential to the action of the novel, but it's there, it's so peripheral, but it's that, that particular peripherality, if there is such a word, that is their point. And I, I mean, I, I used to, when I first read the novel, I saw everything from within, from within Hillary's own consciousness. 
um, his solipsism seemed to me quite, you know, entertaining, if not charming. I think I was more sympathetic towards him than, to him than Daniel was. But now, as I read it again, I think his solipsism is all a part of that indifference to other human beings, particularly, as you said, Miles, to women. I mean, Biscuit, she doesn't even have a, even have a name. She's just there to be kissed whenever he feels like it. Uh, and that, I think, that, that for me, that, that his relationship to Biscuit challenges his, um, challenges his whole relation to the, the, the world of the British Empire that he was exposed to through literature when he was a child, and also in Oxford. There is a lot to say about the relation between greats and or which Hillary did not do but he did win the latter you know those very prestigious prizes the relationship between classics at Oxford and the Indian civil service you can track that history it's very very interesting history so I guess what I'm saying is that Murdoch shows in a very subtle way the actually she places Hillary's experience at a particular historical time both in the beginning back in the 19th century and now coming to its to um, a particular point in the 20th century. Yes, I think that's absolutely right, Rob. And if we think about the, the way in which um, Carell um, treats um, Patty in the time of the angels as well. Absolutely. absolutely yeah, and, yeah. and I was thinking actually of the, the scene on the, um, the station platform where um, Hillary grabs um, Biscuit's um, wrist and 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 squeezes and, and almost crushes her hand. Yeah, it reminded me very much actually of Jake Donahue in the Mime Theatre. Absolutely. Yeah. yeah. This, this, With Anna. Yeah. yeah. And of course, the the, yeah. and the violence that, that men do to women like that that continues yeah. right the way through into uh, the Green, um, not the Green, like the Message to the Planet as well. Yeah, absolutely. The regular yeah. Re recurring. Yeah, absolutely. Yeah, sure. Uh, and I think the only woman that he really gives any attention to, although I don't think it's perfect attention, would be Crystal. Yeah, uh, but but as he says, she's not. She's she's like just part of him. Yes, yeah, an extension of his, almost an extension of his ego. Extension of him, yeah. Yeah, absolutely. And I think a good point to bring um, Daniel in because he's going to read us a section from later on in the novel that discusses their relationship. Yes, yeah. I um I went for quite a late section. Um, and yes, because it reflects on on his relationship with Crystal, and also because it shows um i think reading it now um as opposed to when i i was reading this kind of about six years ago um it shows that he he has made some significant changes in his attitudes to the people around him especially to um crystal um so this is just after to give you a bit of plot um so we've had, we know that he killed Anne in the past by driving dangerously in the car. And this kind of attitude towards women that Hillary has flourishes again in him falling in love with Lady Kitty, um, who is the later wife of Gunnar, who was married previously to Anne, who he had killed again. Um, but now um, this is just after the moment where there's a kind of, awkward scene on a jetty off the on the Thames where 
there's a bit of an altercation between Gunnar and Hillary while Lady Kitty is there and she gets pushed off and eventually she gets swept away into the Thames and she is rescued, but she, she dies of exposure from being too cold. So um, he's at this point in the novel, he's in a, actually in a church and he's kind of reflecting on his, on his behavior through the, through the course of his life, really. Um, and he has made the decision not to tell Crystal about the fact that he was involved in Kitty's death. Um, so yeah, I'll, I'll go back to reading. Um, so it was indeed crucial that this time I had not told Crystal. Then I had someone, a passive spectator who was also a fellow sufferer, to enact it all to. I suffered before Crystal as believers suffer before God. Only doubtless the latter derive more benefit from their suffering than I did. And she, innocent, loving, darling, connived out of all her sheer goodness and her identification with me at an establishment of pure destruction. I was determined that our lives should be wrecked and she, poor Sparrow, had so readily made her little nest in the wreckage. How profitless it had all been, I could now very clearly see. Repentance, penance, redemptive suffering, nothing of the sort. I had destroyed my chances in life and destroyed Crystal's happiness out of sheer pique, out of the spiteful, envious violence which was still in me. It was burning the orphanage down all over again, only now there was no one to stop the work of destruction. I had spoilt my talents and made myself a slave, not because I sincerely regretted what I had done, but because I ferociously resented the ill luck which had prevented me from getting away with it. What had impressed me really was not the crime itself, but the instant and automatic nature of the first retribution, the loss of Oxford, my position and the fruits of my labour. If I had indeed got away with it, I could perhaps have recovered. As so often, as in my own childhood, guilt sprang from the punishment rather than from the crime, and I perpetuated my suffering out of resentment. If I had been the only recipient of this violence, the incident might have been, in some recording angel's book, regarded as closed, but I deliberately made Crystal suffer with me. Could her pure suffering have redeemed me? In some ideal theory, yes. In reality, no. Of course, I regretted what I had done. I regretted all those wrong choices with their catastrophic results, and not just as pieces of ill luck. I saw where I had behaved badly, the selfishness, the destructiveness, the rapacity. I, I think the important section, uh, this is a particularly important section of the novel. I mean, it comes towards the end and these, this whole scene in the church really is, is very important. But this particular moment sticks out to me now because it, he seems here to be giving a lot more space to Crystal that he didn't before. So in the past, he had included Crystal in the knowledge that Anne was um, killed by him when he was driving, a, a fact that no one else had known. It was not public knowledge. So, so he traps them in that, in that experience of suffering. And, and in, that, the, in his removal from Oxford, which he kind of sees as a form of punishment, um, it means that Crystal is brought into this punishment as well. And... All through that, he, he, he mentions here about how she had readily made a little nest out of all of this. She has, she has seemed to do relatively okay, at least. You know, she seems to function. She has herself a little kind of um, sewing job on the side and whatnot. But, but she seems to stay relatively unharmed um, by all of this. 
and this time round, it seems Hillary is aware that it would be, it, it is potentially kinder not to include her in the knowledge that he killed Kitty, because it is his own mistakes that led to Kitty's death, not Crystal's. And so I think that that is quite a positive, um, I think it's Hillary beginning to learn a valuable lesson. And especially towards the end of the reading where he, he, he notices that he's behaved badly. And I think where in the past he might have um, kind of put these things down to a resentful attitude towards society and things like this and having a terrible upbringing. Um, he here is a bit better at saying, no, I, I did things wrong and I need to be aware of those things. And perhaps I should give Crystal the space to live a life outside of my own mistakes. So Daniel, where do you see Hillary ending up, I suppose? Do you, do you see him as a reformed character or, or do you see him as, as some do? Or he'll just go on and repeat the same mistakes? I think um, that he is heading in the right direction to kind of, to, to be a bit more ambiguous, which I suppose is what Murdoch would want us to think most of the time. I, I think he's moving in the right direction towards significant improvements, towards, you know, making a life where he doesn't have to pull people inside his own way of living. You know, they can live outside mm. of him. Yeah. Um, and I think that is a positive thing and it shows the beginning of um, moral development. Whether or not he will fall back into a cycle at the end of the novel is, I think, left up to each reader to decide. I, I don't... I, now, reading it at the moment, I think I'm feeling more sympathetic towards him and perhaps he, with a bit of reflection, will be a little better this time round. But, yes, um, it's left open-ended, isn't it? Much as it is yeah. close to Michael Mead at the end of the bell. Yeah, exactly. Yeah, uh, Maria, are you in sort of in agreement with Dan in that position, or do you do you think that um, the ending is perhaps less ambiguous? It's, I think it is ambiguous, um, and I think Murdoch intended it to be. Um, but I I oh, I always feel hopeful for the for um, for her at the end. There are certain indications that he has. He has changed. He is seeing things, and I think the um, the scene in the church where he actually starts to grieve for the various people he's lost realizes, and also at the where he's he's worked through the forgiveness. He's working through. He hasn't worked it through. He's working through the, the idea of forgiveness, and at the end, at the very on the very last page of that last chapter, I've read and reread that chapter, and I read it differently every time. So it's a wonderful chapter, um, where Tommy, his girlfriend, admits that she um, she had sent a letter to to Gunnar, um, telling him of. Um, of Hillary's involvement with his wife, which obviously was instrumental in, in the catastrophe happening. Um, and he, she says, Tommy says, can you forgive me? And he says, I expect so. As I said, time will show. Now it's not an absolute, yes, of course I will, but there's the concept of forgiving and you think, yeah, he's been forgiven. He's forgiven by Gunnar. And this idea of forgiving equals mm. forgiving. 
um, is it, he's actually got something to work on here. <laughs> yes, and it, and, the, and the forgiveness is going to be um, you know outside of the novel, isn't it? Yeah, outside, yeah. You're left. You're left. Really. You're left. You're left wondering. And I, and I think this is this question about forgiveness and redemption brings us back to this this scene in the church. And Rob, I know that you've written about this and, and thought about. Murdoch um, engaging with T.S. Eliot at this point as well. Could you yeah. say a little something about that? Yeah, um, sure. I, I think for me, for me, actually, it's one of the revealing passages. Not only is it, I agree with everything um, Daniel said and Maria said, but what is curious to me about Hillary's use of that particular passage um, is it's it's another example where Hillary is revealed as an unreliable narrator about himself. Yes, of course. Uh, he only, uh, Hillary, Bird only reads poetry of the grammar, which is actually something that Hillary doesn't mind having that said about him, and he believes it as well. Um, but it, clearly in the passage about T.S. Eliot, he has read four quartets with great attention, and um, so he's revealing a much more sensitive side to himself than he would like to have us believe that he is. Um, so, uh, that's one of the things that I want to say about it. That, that, and uh, they, that, what, what is sort of related to this is that actually one of the things that the novel shows, whether Murdoch was quite aware of this, I don't know, but and actually the whole masculine environment, very male environment of greats, um, of studying classical dead languages with that degree of attention, divorced, removed from an emotional engagement with a living language, there is a question with, as to how far that was a, an, an emotional education, provided a needful emotional education. And Mark Patrick Hederman's latest book suggests that, in fact, it was a profoundly emotionally deadening, deadening approach to education and to life and the generations of young men who went up to the Indian civil service having done greats or classics at Cambridge actually were very ill prepared to deal with the emotional stresses of life uh, both at home and in the east. Um, so I, I guess all, all I'm saying is that it's one of those occasions where in the novel where Hillary is capable of displaying emotion without it being, without tearing himself to pieces or making a joke of it. Because Hillary's great refuge is laughing at himself and particularly at others as well. The novel is, I still find it extremely funny. It, it, for me, it, it um, it, it, it captures something about the English irony, the English sense of humour, and shows it to be, it is both extremely funny and extremely damaging and emotionally limiting. And I think Murdoch um, achieves that balance quite amazingly well. But, but to go back to T.S. Eliot, I think it's one of those few occasions in the novel where Hillary shows his vulnerability and is, if you like, emotionally intelligent, which for so much of the novel, he's not. He may be a brilliant linguist, but emotional intelligence, as we would call it now, he wouldn't have done, uh, is something he wasn't, for most of the novel, capable of. No, so certainly um, rather lacking. So as our time draws um, to a close today, I suppose I'd like to ask 
each of you to sort of ref reflect on the novel in general and, and where it sits um, within Murdoch's work. I, I certainly think it's one of the best, um, but I'm, I wonder what you think. Um, Maria, why don't we start with you? Um, yes, I think, well, it's certainly one of my favourites. Um, whether that means it's one of the greatest, I don't know. Um, but I, and I think it is a very rich novel um, in many ways. So, yes, I think it probably is one of her best, best ones, yes. Yeah, da Daniel, how about you? Um, I, I agree. I, I think it, it's situated in, a, in an interesting place in Murdoch's kind of creative um, chronology, um, so to speak. And, and, you know, even down to its structure, I think this is the last novel that has a relatively standard um, uh, chapter structure with the days of the week. Um, of course, the later ones start to just get rid of that entirely, which makes it somewhat challenging um, sometimes if you want to split the novel up into smaller, more, more, more easily readable chunks. Um, so there's something about that that's quite nice about this novel, which makes it quite manageable to read. Um, and also, I think it, there's a great deal of um, political and social awareness in the novel that, um, that, that helps to make it quite a rich reading. Um, especially thinking about the things that um, Rob is saying as well, thinking about the kind of an emotionally deadening environment that that Hillary um, has has had in his education. You know, when we match that with the emotionally deadening childhood that he seems to have had, you can start to see, you know, m more sympathetically some of the reasons why Hillary struggles so much in his life. And in that way, we have quite a a, a complex individual that's on display and so yeah I think a, a very good one of one of Murdoch's great novels. Yes absolutely and, and Rob the, I think we'll leave the the, uh, the final word to you. Oh thanks Miles uh, I agree with everything that Maria and Diana said yeah I, for me it's one of her really great novels. I think it, it's while well, on it, it's for me I mean for me she it is one of those occasions where she often approaches Shakespeare in the, and uh, my God, one does not say that lightly, but the range, just the absolute range of emotion that you can find in this novel. Um, as you know, Shakespeare, Othello is one of the funniest texts in the English language. And I think this is also an extremely funny text, very, very funny novel, um, while being also absolutely catastrophically um, appalling. And there we must leave it. So my thanks to uh, Daniel Reed, to Rob Hardy and to Maria Peacock. And next time on the podcast, we'll be having a summertime special and we'll be focusing on Iris Murdoch and swimming. Not just swimming in the novels, but um, her life, uh, as well as um, the material that she wrote about swimming in a non-fictional capacity as well. And join me on that podcast will be Natasha Alden from the University of Aberystwyth, Hannah Altor from St Mary's University Twickenham, who's been on before, and um, Lucy Alton from um, University of Chichester. So my thanks to uh, my guests today and my thanks to you all for listening.